Okay, sounds good. Um, as we uh, plan all of this, um, and while you guys are in the text, um, let me just recap really quickly where we've been at as we close our series. We've covered four of the five solas of the Reformation so far, and those solas, those alones, the Latin word sola means alone, uh, have been tackling through the question of how has God said he wants to be known and what has God made known about himself? And that has been limited, not by a man 500 years ago in the Reformation by Martin Luther, that has been um, limited by God himself. He has explained it in such a way and such a means that are the best way and the best means by which to know him. And the very first one that we covered was scripture alone, that God has done amazing things throughout history and has explained himself and how good he is. And that has all been recorded for us in scripture. He's protected his word. Um, he's uh, created a way by which his word can be recorded for us and continue to bless us as we study it through the power of his Holy Spirit. Um, but the second thing that we covered right after was grace alone. And that moves us from learning about God to uh, who God is and how he loves us. Because God loves us, he started our salvation. Um, that we did not uh, find God lovely and we did not do anything to earn God's attention. Just out of God's love for us as sinners, he began this relationship with us and he explained to us that that relationship will last for eternity because of his grace, because of his mercy and forgiveness and because he loved us before we loved him. That's grace alone. But the way by which we have that connection, we understand it by we entering into the system of salvation, that's through faith. And that's what it means to be saved by faith alone. That we don't do things to be right with God, but rather we believe in God and he will keep, uh, take care of the doing things. And the doing things we learned the very next week, which was last week, and that is through Christ alone. John 14, 6, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that wasn't because Christ was trying to be exclusive for the sake of being cool or popular. Christ was exclusive because there was no way man could be saved. And Christ came and lived a perfect life and then died on the cross for our sins so that the righteousness we need and the punishment of our sins that we need to be right with God can all be accomplished. And that was all accomplished through Christ. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Now that's four of the five. And, and as we cover the fifth today, the last one today, the question I just want to ask is, if I asked you what's the reason this is important, what would you say? You know, if I vacated the mic right now, and I just pulled the mic to every one of you, and you had to very awkwardly uh, say into the mic what the importance of this series is, what would you say? Why is it important to understand salvation and go into these things the way that we have? I think... The obvious answer is because we need to get saved. The obvious answer is because we need to determine how it is that we get saved. Now, if that was the only reason, we could have done that in a lot shorter time than four sermons for somewhere between 45 minutes each sermons on this stuff. We've been diving deep into the word. And as we've been diving deep, uh, you should realize we don't actually have to get that deep just to get people saved if that's your only goal. 
If that's your goal, we could have shared them the gospel. If that's the goal, we could have even just freaked people out about how scary hell is, and then people could get saved. I tend to call that microwave Christianity, just putting a little fear in there, throwing someone in, shutting the door, uh, let them think about it for a little bit, and as they get scared, they come out and they're just Christians. But that is not only not the way that we explain the gospel, that's not the way that we want people to be saved. It also puts all of the focus of this series on us. It puts all of the focus on these things um, because we care about the consequences of our own sin. Now, don't get me wrong. I want every single one of you to know about why hell exists and why eternal judgment is right because God is a good judge and we have proven ourselves guilty in our sin. But if that is all that this series does or is, if that's all salvation is, then all that the gospel is is a get-out-of-jail-free uh, card. It's just living a game of monopoly, and salvation is the ticket by which you don't have to suffer consequences anymore, and all of a sudden you're right. Now, that might help you if you're worried about death, but it's not going to encourage you as you go through this life, and it's certainly not going to change your desires to worship God. You might do some things that you think might make him happy, but basically doing that is just proving that you really don't understand the whole point of salvation, but thankfully that's what we're covering today. Everything that we've covered so far about how we are saved is supposed to teach you something deeper than just the things that we've learned. When you understand how it is that you are saved, you end up learning more about the person who saved you. You end up learning more about how there's something wrong with this world and that no matter what you do and where you go, there's nothing in this world that satisfies and you start learning as you learn about God and how he has saved you that there's a reason why nothing satisfies and that's because God has created you to only be eternally satisfied in one way. And none of that is found in this world. And as you study through how you are saved, I hope you can come to the realization, maybe even as we go through the text today, that the real question when you study the Bible is not how to get saved, it's why you were saved. And the reason that salvation exists is because God is collecting worshipers to glorify him. The real purpose of understanding everything about salvation is most importantly about glorifying God. Now the word glory is thrown around a lot and so if you're not sure what that means, the word glory means weight. The word glory means weight. And what it means is that something is heavy, it is weighty, it draws attentions to itself. What glory really means is significance. It means eternal significance, it means relevance, it means importance. And when we say that God is worthy of all glory, we mean God is worthy of all significance, of all importance, of all relevance. And not just now, but through all the ages, through every time that's gone and every time that will uh, go that the purpose of our lives isn't just to be in right relationship with God, but now that relationship is restored with God, that all of our attention would go towards from our hearts upholding the significance of God. That's really what we're going to be delving into today. And that's important for us because how we think about God and how we think of glory is of massive importance. One really good Christian writer named A.W. Tozer once said these words that I think are, are so true. 
He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. If you close your eyes, who is God? If you think about God, do you become fearful? Do you become excited? If you think about God, is he irrelevant? Who is God to you? Really what the Bible is trying to explain in going through the process of salvation and how we are sinners is that a high view of God and what he is worth is something amazing and transformative to a Christian, to a sinner who becomes a Christian. We don't naturally want to give God glory because that tends to take away glory from us. But when we have a high view of God, it means God has done something to us and we're doing what we were designed to do. But if we have a low view of God, then something is wrong that we are not noticing in our lives. If you go through the, the modes of how salvation is accomplished, if you go through the how of salvation and it doesn't stir your heart to want to glorify God, then everything that's happened so far is useless. It doesn't work. It, it's not doing what it's supposed to do because what's really happening is we're supposed to be going more and more into how we were functioned to live. This is something I've tried to mention to you guys in multiple different sermons about four words that can describe the entire Bible. Four words that could describe the entire Bible is God will be glorified. The story of the Bible is how God is creating this plan of salvation but that everything, including our salvations, all goes back to the fact that God is worthy of all praise and is creating a world in which he will receive all praise. Now sin, for us, we would think ruins this. It certainly ruins us jumping into that story and being part of this chorus of worshipers that's being created by God, but what's really happening is because salvation exists, because we have sin and it needs to be fixed, God is actually putting himself more on display and revealing more about himself, more of his love, more of his grace, more of his forgiveness, none of which would have been possible if we never needed to be saved. And so even with sin entering the world, God has created a platform for himself to demonstrate how good he is and how worthy he is of all of our praise. And it can't be finished there. If you've learned that you do need to be right with God and that's created a desire in your heart to be right with God, then you need to understand that what has really happened is that the original purpose of your creation is now restored. And so then with, with that foundation, you can then go and not only in upholding the truths we've been going in, but with your entire life, you would actually be able to leave here and glorify God appropriately. Now, I want to kind of get into some of the meat and bones of glory and how glory works with humans. When humans consider the glory of God, there's really about two reactions, um, bare minimum, that you should have. There are implications to really understanding the glory of God. Um, honestly, the glory of God is probably the greatest topic in the entire Bible, and so just to Bring all this down to a couple of points. Let me tell you a couple of the implications of understanding the glory of God. Implication number one, if you understand the glory of God, you understand it's dangerous. The glory of God is dangerous. Let me explain what I mean. If you understand the glory of God, which is the weight of God, 
It's like understanding if you're someone who goes to the gym and you do the bench press, there's a moment where you realize that the weight that you are lifting is too heavy for you to lift. Now, all of your concentration, all of your attention should be focused on that weight, but there gets to a point where the weight becomes too heavy and you need help getting it off you. And even if you didn't need it off of you, as you start pressing and pressing and pressing that against your chest, the importance of everything in your life is, is not important so long as this bar is on you. And, and that captures all of your attention. And if it's too much for you, it becomes dangerous. Understanding the glory of God as a sinner is like an infinite amount of weight being benched upon you. There's absolutely no way you could survive the encounter. There is absolutely no way that we could get into that situation and give it the amount of attention by which the weight would be released from us. Now, the glory of God isn't just something that sinners have to worry about. It's something people have to worry about. Even Moses, who was right with God and led the people of Israel, asked to see the glory of God. And God said, if I do that for you, it will kill you. The glory of God is dangerous. That is a massive implication to the glory of God, especially for us, because sinners aren't just dealing with the glory of God that already exists. We are dealing with a God who demands all glory as people who constantly try to steal God's glory. We are people who live in God's world and we don't give him glory and God is not okay with that. Isaiah 42, eight says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The implications of being a sinner is that you reject the glory of God because you steal it for yourself. And so we need to figure out a way, as we've gone through in this series, to switch that perspective, that God's glory no longer becomes something that we are terrified of, but actually the opposite. We want the glory of God, and God wants to explain the way by which his glory becomes not something frightening, but something beautiful. That's the second implication of the glory of God, that as a Christian, the glory of God is no longer frightening or dangerous to us. Rather, the glory of God is captivating. Captivating is the best word I could possibly think for being so in love with something that you are drawn to it constantly. And the glory of God for a Christian becomes something that you recognize you want more than anything else in the world, that you want to see the glory of God. Have you ever been captivated by something like that? Maybe if we, if we jump back, have you ever been captivated by something in just a single moment? Have you ever been so interested in something in front of you that the importance of everything else kind of disappeared for a second? I was trying to think of the best examples for this, and the example that I always think of is the Muppets. I think a lot of you guys already know that I, I like the Muppets, and even as I've grown as an adult, I've been very fascinated with the technology and, and how that works. And when I was an adult, I read Jim Henson, who created the Muppets, his biography. And even looking at the look on your faces right now, I think you're all wondering why on earth would you read a biography about a puppeteer? And I totally get it, and it makes sense. And actually, it makes sense so much that the biographist thought the exact same thing. And so in his preface, what he tried to explain before the first chapter even starts, he tried to explain in a story to the audience why Jim Henson was such an interesting person. 
He describes a story on the set of Sesame Street in which a young girl was pulled in front of the camera and she was supposed to say the ABCs to teach other kids at home the ABCs. But unfortunately, she was very scared. She was very nervous of all the people watching her. She was very nervous of what was going on and, and she couldn't do it. So what happened is Jim Henson behind the camera put on a sock a sock very popularly known as Kermit the Frog, and he walks out in front of the camera and starts interacting with this little girl. And this little girl can see Jim Henson right there. He is raised on a plat, or she is raised on a platform looking down and she can see his big bearded face right there, but she is not looking at Jim Henson. Jim Henson doesn't exist to her. The only thing that exists to her is this little talking sock that in her eyes has become a fully living, breathing, talking frog and she becomes a totally different person. All of a sudden, all her fear is gone. She starts giggling, she's hugging and, and playing around with Kermit, and she begins reciting the ABCs perfectly. She actually knows it so well, she starts goofing around with Kermit, and he pretends to get frustrated, and this really hilarious and funny exchange happens between the two of them. But you would have never known that was the same person. And the point that this biographist was trying to make is the thing that was so amazing about Jim Henson is that he captivated people. That was something so simple as a sock with ping pong balls on it. He got people's attention, even if it was for a 20 minute show. There are lots of things in life that are like that. Every TV show or movie you've watched, if you like books, it can captivate your attention for long periods of time. People can captivate your attention when you hang out with them, when you spend time with them, and when you speak with them and love them and they love you. Actually, we get so captivated with people that we do this thing called getting married where we decide we're gonna be captivated by this person for the rest of our life. But all of those things have one thing in common. They can only captivate you for your lifetime. When you die, nothing captivates you because you are not living. But God's glory is so beautiful and so wonderful and it is worth all of your attention so much that God has saved people to be captivated by his glory forever, for eternity because that's what God's glory deserves. It deserves people being saved from their sin, being right with God so they can be before him and they can enjoy gazing upon him, spending time with him, learning about him, receiving his love and loving him in return forever. That is how the glory of God is supposed to captivate people who have been saved by a God that they know they should be frightened of, they know they should be put in a dangerous position with him, but instead, he has loved them, he has saved them, and now he's captivated them, not just for their entire life, but for infinity. I wanna look at two of those things in 1 Corinthians chapter one, if you still have it in front of you, and I don't wanna to spend too much time in it, but I wanna to explain to you in looking at how God saved sinners, how it is that the glory of God enters into that picture. What does the glory of God have to do with salvation? If you have your Bible and in 1 Corinthians chapter one, I'm gonna be reading from the last chapters of 1 Corinthians chapter one. That's verses 26 to 31. I believe the words will be on the screen here, but if you are not there yet, move there later because I'm gonna be looking directly at the text and the text won't be on the screen the entire time. So if you need time, you can switch to it a bit later. 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse 26 to 31 says this, 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to earthly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you want a synopsis of everything that Paul is trying to talk about, look at the two times in this text where he says, so that. Paul's saying, why is all this important? It's important so that you do this thing. If you were ever reading your Bible and see a so that or a that, that is drawing attention to the main point that the author wants you to walk away with, wants you to know. And the two so that statements explain something that we've been talking about so far. The first so that is in verse 29 in which he says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What he's going to talk about in both these so that statements is boasting. When you like something, you boast about it. If you are cocky, you are boasting about how good you are and you are getting attention for yourself. If you boast in your awards, then you are proud for those things giving you worth. What you boast in is what you think is worthy of most attention. Verse 29 says what is not worthy of most attention is anything in any human being. No human being will boast before God about any worthiness in themselves. That's what we don't boast in, but we do boast in something else. Paul almost repeats himself exactly in verse 31, the very last verse there, and he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So God is pro-boasting. God is pro you finding something worthy to boast in and boasting in it, but it's not us, it's God. God has explained how beautiful and wonderful he is, especially to us in salvation, and because of that, we are to load him with praise, the praises of our entire lives and eventually eternity, and God is pleased in that. He is pleased in us worshiping and loving him for how good he is. And there are only two people, rather the whole world is going to be divided in two categories and they will look on God and they will have a completely different experience. One will boast in themselves and find and realize that they have nothing worth boasting in and the others will boast in the Lord and they will enjoy doing that for eternity. As we look in this text, there are two ways that God is interacting with those two groups of people. But for the benefit of us, I want to give you guys at least two ways that you should respond to the glory of God as you see God turning to those who boast in themselves and boasting and those who boast in the Lord. There should be two responses as you see God respond to these two audiences. The first response that we need to understand is that if we understand the glory of God, it should humble us. The glory of God should humble us. Paul says in verse 26, consider your calling. All that calling means is that God has called you into salvation. God is a God of infinite power, 
And that power is so great that with a simple word, he spoke the word and the entire universe was created. But that same power wasn't only used to create the universe, it was used to bring us from deadness to life and into his arms. God's word speaking, his calling does that for us. It literally saves dead sinners. But Paul at the same time is trying to explain this to people that are in his congregation and he notices something fascinating about the kind of audience that he's preaching to. He starts looking up from the pulpit, looking at the congregation, he starts making some observations. He says, this is interesting. Look at all of you. Most of you weren't wise. And that seems kind of mean. He says, most of you are pretty dumb. But what he really says here is, you weren't wise according to earthly standards. Now, of course, we would assume there's many Christians who are accomplished, but the most accomplished people in the world don't tend to be Christians. Mark Zuckerberg's, Elon Musk's, we don't see many of them in his congregation. You might get a Bill Gates or two, but most of them aren't here. He says, actually, most of you are the opposite. When he looks up, Dr. Paul looks at the congregation and diagnoses them with average brain. You guys are pretty average as far as knowledge and wisdom goes, and that's fine. But you know, it's kind of strange that we don't have the shiniest coins in the fountain, the sharpest tools in the shed. And he doubles down on that assumption because he says they're not only not the wisest people, they're also not the most powerful people. When he looks out, he doesn't see the most resourceful and the most able and the most successful people in life. And again, this seems incredibly contradictory in what you might assume. God seems to be calling to people and saving them, but he's not gathering the people that you think would do the most damage in proclaiming the gospel. He doesn't pick the top people in society. He doesn't pick the people who are most resourceful. It's like if you were building a house and you said, I want the worst bricks and the worst material to build my house. And you would say, you're going to build a terrible house. Your house is going to be the worst. Why would you pick that material to build a nice house? Or you might think if you were trying to get together an Olympic track team and you thought to yourself, bring me the slowest people. That's who I want. And everyone says, what? That is exactly the opposite of what we were trying to accomplish here. But that's exactly what God says he's doing. And he triples down on that by saying he also doesn't see any nobility. No governors of California. No Arnold Schwarzeneggers anywhere in sight. No kings, no rulers, just peasants. And if we were thinking in our context, what he's really just saying for us is he doesn't see the most popular people in society littering the halls of the church. If Paul were to sound out a cry for any Kardashians here in the congregation, no? Okay. And he doesn't think that's weird. As he starts looking around, he doesn't see a lot of actors, a lot of professional musicians. If he let out a cry for anybody have a princess diary situation right now, anybody get a phone call and find out that you're the heir to the throne of Genovia and all of a sudden everything is a-okay, no? Okay. That's not surprising to Paul. All of those people who don't fit into the top categories of society are exactly the people God has called to salvation. 
And Paul wants to be incredibly intentional about that. He wants to draw a lot of attention to that. That's why he repeats over and over and over, God chose, God chose, and God chose. In verse 27 and 28, he says, God chose three times. And why is that? Why did God choose the lowest people in society? It's because God is trying to make a point to the highest people in society. The people who are most successful, most esteemed, have made it a life of, a clue, uh, of taking their own glory. It is people who have built their lives to draw attention to themselves and their own successes and their own assessments, and they have been building up their own importance. That's not a threat to God. God isn't intimidated by that, but God is not okay with that. And so God is going to make a point. And when God saves the lowest people in society and he makes them more powerful than even the most powerful people in society here, he puts them, as he says multiple times in this text, to shame. He's making the ultimate point that nobody is going to compete with the glory of God. So God is going to save foolish people foolish people, and through saving foolish people, God is going to prove that the world's wisdom is foolishness. All of the genius that this world could ever bust out, it's never going to be enough to match God's. And it's certainly never going to be enough to construct another way to get saved. And God's going to prove that by even the simplest, most unintelligent, perhaps, people in the world, they are going to have the ability to grasp the gospel. And when they have access into that eternal wisdom, God himself, the wisest people in the world are going to look utterly foolish. And he's not just doing that with the wise, he's doing that with the powerful. He's going to save the weak person. And through the salvation of weak people, he is going to show the world that the world's strength is absolute weakness. If you look at Psalm chapter 2, there's a picture of God in heaven looking down on the most powerful nations in the world and he's laughing at them. Why is God laughing at the most powerful people in the world? Because it's a ridiculous image to him. It's like if God were to have a cage match and put himself in the cage and the most powerful king in the world came in, put on some boxing gloves and says, okay, let's do this. And God just sits there and he's laughing and says, are you kidding me? Why on earth would you put yourself up to this? And that is the picture of every single person in the world who thinks that their glory is of any importance. God sees it as absolute foolishness. It is ridiculous. And so God is going to save the weakest people in the world and they are going to be infinitely more powerful in having an eternal relationship with him than any power this world has ever known. And of course, that's only two of the three things that he mentioned. So as Paul approaches that last point, he really, really gets into it. At first, he calls them low and despised. I don't know if you've ever been wanted to call despised. It doesn't feel good. But it's even actually more serious than that. He calls us things that are not. He calls us nothings. Paul says that God is in the business of saving nothings. 
Why is that? Because there are people out there who think that the whole world is about them. They think that they are everything's. And that is ridiculous. So what God is going to do is he is going to save the nothings and he is going to unite them with himself, the everything. And then they will have everything and prove once and for all that the everythings of this world have absolutely nothing. They have nothing. But those of us who knew when we acknowledged our sin and we came before Christ and we knew that he was worth all glory and we gave him nothing and we rejected him constantly. Instead of banishing us from his sight, instead he's going to unite us with him and give us everything. And that should humble us. I recognize when I was your guys' age as well that sometimes it can feel very shameful to be a Christian. That you can go into multiple places, whether it be your school, maybe even your home, and you can feel worried about saying that you're a Christian. But texts like these are supposed to remind you that you should never, ever, ever be ashamed of being a Christian because you are united with God who is everything. And everyone in the world who thinks that God is irrelevant, one day if they persist in those ways, they're gonna be shamed for eternity. And for the rest of of infinity, they are going to recognize the ridiculousness of what they do, but they will still do it for eternity. And we're going to see that, and it's going to humble us. It's not going to terrify us. It's going to, not going to frighten us, but it's going to humble us, and it's going to recognize who am I, a nothing, to be saved by this God. As we consider that, I want to go back to the first point that I was trying to make with you guys about the danger of the glory of God. If we have rejected God as sinners, the glory of God is dangerous to us. We would be these people that we know in our hearts that we have taken glory for ourselves and we have not given it to God. So how do we get from the position of being sinners to being right with God? How do we get in the position from being scared of the glory of God to desirous of the glory of God? And the answer was met in last week. It is because you are in Christ. That Christ didn't keep saving you. He didn't keep dying for your sin. He died for all of your sin, past and present, once, and now forever you are united with him. And the benefits last for eternity. I don't know if you've ever condensed salvation down to just being right with God, but something else more dramatic has happened. What's happened in salvation is the Holy Spirit has changed your thoughts about the glory of God. And it's because God has been revealed to you in Christ, his beauty, his perfection, everything, and made himself so beautiful that you now chase after him for the rest of your life. And one day at the end of your life, you will reach that end and you will go into an eternal relationship with him in which everything you've ever wanted, which now has been transformed to be the glory of God, it's all given to you forever. And verse 30 explains that's because we are in Christ. And because of that, the glory of God is no longer a fearful thing. It is a hopeful thing. That's why Christ in the New Testament is often called the hope of glory. Not the freaking out of holy, of glory rather, the hope of glory. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ becomes a hope for you, a hope that one day you are going to be seeing the glory of God. Romans 5.2 says the same, through him, through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Christ has provided a way that we will not only just be right with God in this life, but we will enjoy God's glory forever. And all the benefits of that, all the beauty of that found in Christ, that's summed up in four things in our text. Obviously, we could preach a sermon on every single one of these. Let me give you a one-minute debrief of all four of these things. First of all, Christ for us is the wisdom of God. Christ has become for us the wisdom of God. 2 Peter 1.3 says that his divine power has granted us to know all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. God didn't just save you in Christ so that you would know him in terms of knowing salvation, that you would know, know him, that you would have a relationship with him. And the reality of that is that you have been exposed to the infinite mind of God, all his wisdom. And you see that in everything he is doing, he has made the best decisions and he has done it through the best means. And even when you don't understand, you have access to trust God from the power of his Holy Spirit and you can assess your life and your situation always hopeful that the end of the road will be seeing the glory of God and you are hopeful because 1 Corinthians 2.16, you have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of God. That you are not limited to your bubble. That through the Bible, you have this infinite expanse of all of the most wonderful things you could ever hear because you have access to the wisdom of God in Christ. We should glorify God for such an amazing opportunity. The second thing he says is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is found in Jesus Christ. I hope we don't have to even spend really a minute on this because that was all of the sermon last week. When you look at the life and death of Christ, you realize that not only saved you, but that that is a perfect life. There is something amazing about that. And as you view it, you glorify God for it because that perfect life didn't need to do anything for you, but it did everything for you. And because of that perfect life and that life being given to us through Christ's death on the cross, we are to glorify God. The third thing he mentions is sanctification. The point is that if you love Christ, if you are saved by Christ, if you look at Christ, you can't help but start becoming like Christ. Sanctification is often assumed as being mature or becoming smarter or fixing your behavior. It's not. Sanctification is the natural process by which Christians start becoming like Christ. And we can't help but model Christ because we can't help looking at Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Christ becomes the most beautiful thing in the whole world. And so you can't help looking at him and becoming like him. That is sanctification. And what that actually also is, is what heaven is. When you get saved, your best desire in the whole world is seeing the glory of God. And heaven is fulfilling that desire. 
Suddenly you want nothing more than to be with God. And heaven is God giving you that request forever. That's what David prays in Psalm 27, 4, where he says this, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It's not too cheesy to say, I want to be in heaven because God is my best friend and I miss my best friend and I miss home. That's really what being a Christian is. It's enjoying this life because we know that through his word we have access to the Father, we have access to God, but we're homesick. We are missing the relationship that Christ has already bought for us. And so we're waiting to go back into that relationship because we know all the cost has been paid and that's the fourth one, redemption. He says that Christ has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Redemption is being bought back by God. There is a cost to our sin, the eternal punishment of God, and Christ dealt with all of that. So now the only thing that we are waiting is for that investment to reap results. And that investment has bought us an eternal timeshare in heaven. We are waiting to go home. We have been bought back by Christ, and we are waiting for that to be fulfilled. I know if you're like me, if I, in ending this, take my eyes off of this and just look at all of you, I know that some of these things can seem difficult or not super engaging for a number of reasons, but if I look at you guys, many of us grew up in the church, and you've heard about the glory of God. And if you haven't been a Christian very long, or if you haven't been in church very long, then you haven't heard enough about the glory of God. And so either way, it can be very, very hard to assume, how is it that I can really see this experience as my own? How can I get into the position of seeing these things and wanting them more? I wish I had a particularly revolutionary explanation for you, but really the explanation is simple. And another pastor, I think, said some good words on it, and I'd like to read his words because they're probably better than many of the things that I say. He said, I think it's true to say that the people who have been delivered from the worst are more likely to be eager to talk about the best. Many of us grew up in a Christian family, and we know that we were delivered from our sins, but not in the way that someone else has. Someone who has already lived virtually a lifetime of lies and error and bondage. I think that it is also true to say in the church that the people who have been saved from the most, as Jesus said, are the most thankful. And they're the most likely to talk about the glories of the new covenant. But for the rest of us, we have to gain that conviction not through our own experience, but from we know about the truth. Many of you guys are saved and you're in wonderful families. Many of you are saved and I think every one of us could agree in this room that we have it pretty good even just being in North America. And so sometimes it can be hard to see how God has saved you because your life didn't used to be in the gutter. Now it's just with Christ, but all of your realities around you haven't changed. But the reality is that you need to be people who constantly look at the glory of God through his word, and you know that it was given for you. And the image that it is given is for you 
to be looking forward towards an eternal perspective in which you are constantly growing in affection for God, waiting for that final day. Revelation 4.11 shows that day when it says, thousands and thousands upon angels are singing in joy the glories of God. They say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. That's so hard to do in our world where we're coming up against our own problems and our own afflictions, but maybe the last thing I'll leave you with then, with all of the distractions of everything else that can captivate your heart, listen to the words of a psalmist, a psalmist I read this week, in which the text that we've just looked at and this text that I'm about to read to you is fast becoming some of my favorite scripture in the whole Bible. Psalm 102. Psalm 102 was written by a man who was going through, he says, serious affliction, and it even says that he was complaining to God. But despite all of the things that he doesn't understand and all of the things that he knows distracts his attention from God, he explains and praises God in thankfulness because... He's done one thing for him that makes all of the rest seem insignificant. This man has been awakened to the glory of God, and he's waiting for that day to come. Psalm 102, verse 18 to 22 says this. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height, From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to sin, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. You might not have been saved from the worst human life you could live, but you were saved from the worst judgment in eternity that you could have. That is an inward experience that can be incredibly more dramatic than being saved from anything in this world. And all it takes is considering in your heart what is the glory of God. And as you read the Bible and it answers that question for you, know that Christ has made a way for you to enjoy that glory forever. Let's pray. Father, all glory be to your name. You are worth everything, and we understand the nothingness that we live in every day, and in our nothingness, we try to take glory for ourselves, but through being saved, you have changed our perspective eternally. You are an amazing, wonderful God, worthy of immortal, indescribable, infinite glory. We pray that as we understand you, we would give you more of it. You have been eternally pleased through the sacrifice of your son, but we pray that we would give you infinite praises as you draw our salvations perfectly to a close in our lives. And until that day, help us grow in the word that we would see that glory and love it even more day by day. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray all this in your name. Amen.